Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. That is the sound of humanity. That is the sound of Black Friday. Black Friday is, of course, the traditional shopping day after Thanksgiving when people high on turkey allow the urge to shop to overwhelm basic human courtesy and dignity. But we aren't talking about Black Friday today because you probably heard enough about it and you may even be there right now. We are today taking a peek under the lid of the clothing industry. We're looking at how it gets into our brains. We're looking at its unexpected environmental impacts. And specifically, we're starting with something called fast fashion. This is the super rapid cycling of fairly cheap clothing from the runway to the store. Critics of this are saying that consumers in wealthy countries uh, are increasingly not just buying clothing because they need it, but instead treating it like a sugary cereal. We don't eat it for nutritional value. We just want the sugar rush. Nothing tastes as sweet as consumerism. (laughs) Joining us today is Mark Bain, who covers the fashion industry for Quartz. He wrote a big feature on how consumer behavior is shaping and being shaped by global supply chains and fast fashion. Thanks for joining us today, Mark. Thanks for having me. Mark, what is it about fast fashion that makes like the shopping experience different for people? So fast fashion is clothing that's very cheap, generally. It also tends to be, not the most polite way to put it, but basically knockoff of higher-end items. This is like when we hear that Gap buys all its clothes a year in advance, whereas H&M will see the runways in fall, and then bam, they're going to get those inspired clothing right, right, right as fast as they can. So that's exactly right. Um, Actually, Zara is uh, one of their big points of pride is that they can take something from concept to store shelves in two weeks. Whoa. But yeah, so the thing about fast fashion is that it's really uniquely suited to tap into the way our brains process shopping, um, which is getting something new frequently and and getting it cheap. What is it about clothing that lends itself to the obsessiveness of impulse shopping, bin shopping. If we are around cheap food, I don't think we necessarily just go nutso and hoard food. You've never been with me in a Dunkin' Donuts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there something special about clothing? I I think it's always been the case that people like buying nice clothing. Fast fashion has made it just that much easier to do it on a regular basis and to not have to sacrifice a lot in terms of money. Uh, and then it's it's fueled by the media and social media. There, I don't know if you've you've checked these out, but there are these things called haul videos. H a u l. Yeah, H a u l. And what they literally are is a girl will go do a shopping haul at like Forever Twenty One and Zara, and you know buy all this cheap stuff, and then it's unpacking her buys on camera. So I'm back with another haul from. Forever 21. So I have a really huge bag here and it is so heavy. As you can tell, I went a little crazy. I'm sorry, I have a shopping problem. And there's like a whole community around it on YouTube. It's basically like, check out what I binge shopped today. Right, so they can do this. They can do all this because it's cheap and easy. So you can see this like cycle where like the fast fashion industry like knocks off the high end stuff and makes it available for people for cheap. It's like if the best... Bolivian cocaine costs $2 a gram and everyone could have it. Yeah, I mean... Do you like my overwrought analogy? <laughs> you could you could think of it, too. Like, imagine you had this really huge restaurateur uh, who had, like, a, a restaurant where it's $500 a plate, and then he opened a burger place. 
Uh, and everyone was like, oh, man, I can get this burger version of, of his cuisine that's cheap and accessible. Um, you probably have a line, you know, around the block. So this is basically Shake Shack. Yeah. And you argue the cheapness of fast fashion is is part of the problem because it hides other costs, uh, environmental costs, for example. Yeah. Um, fashion is a very, very polluting industry. In the West, you don't really see a lot of it. But in places like China and India, the dyeing and finishing of all that fabric is like really disastrous for the environment. So the more clothing we make, the more pollution that results. We're also just using a lot of resources. Cotton, for instance, is just a very energy-intensive plant to grow. People are buying a lot of the clothing at these stores, but they're not necessarily, I guess, wearing a lot of it. Yeah, there's actually this email survey of American women that found the average American woman had something like $550 worth of unworn clothing uh, when you total it all up. The other statistic that I thought was really crazy from your story on this is just how much clothing the U.S. imports. Yeah, so according to the American Apparel and Footwear Association, we now import 97.5% of our clothing. And that means there are people overseas making this stuff. If you look at Bangladesh, it's a great example of this. Um, Bangladesh's uh, economy is built on clothing exports. Um, I believe their clothing exports are... 80% of its exports. And Bangladesh isn't the, it's still, you know, not a well-off country, but it's doing much better these days than it was. And a lot of that is because of the clothing industry. At the same time, you do still have exploitative practices. And you see it in things like the the Rana Plaza factory collapse that killed um, at least 1,134 people. Mm. Mark Bain is a reporter for Quartz. Uh, Thanks, Mark, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Mark, a little bit ago, uh, mentioned shopping in the brain. And Tim, you likened shopping to a cocaine addiction. Uh, But there's a guy who actually has taken that analogy kind of seriously. He looked at what happens in the human brain when we shop. Scott Rick is professor of marketing at the University of Michigan School of Business. Hi, Scott. Hi. Thanks for having me. Scott, tell us about this experiment that you did with an MRI machine and buying. What is the brain doing when we buy something? We had about uh, 26 people make real shopping decisions while having their brain scanned with functional MRI. Real meaning we selected one of their choices at random and they either bought it or did not, depending on their choice in the scanner. So we saw activation in areas that are typically responsive to pleasure. And the more activation we saw there, the more likely they were to buy. The more surprising finding was a region known as the insula, which is associated, among other things, with um, the experience of distress, psychological distress. The more activation we saw there, um, the less likely they were to buy a few seconds later when they had the opportunity. Mm. You're describing how I feel when I'm shopping. Yes. (laughs) Your paper termed these two um, sort of competing reactions uh, a hedonic competition, which is a term I just love. What does that exactly mean? This is a somewhat unusual sequence from a traditional classical point of view, which would just say, well, you think about how much do you want to spend on the coffee? And so you would think about, well, what else could I spend the money on? So you're weighing pleasure versus pleasure. This was suggesting it's a little different. It's pleasure now versus pain now. That seems so much more realistic than me going shopping and thinking, hmm, well, this twenty four ninety nine sweater I could use to purchase a package of persimmons later. Or, like, <laughs> like no one does that. 
Exactly. We don't kind of do these cognitive gymnastics on the spot and reframe things in other terms. If we spent this much time on every single purchase, I mean, we'd get nothing done. We'd just be standing in the aisles thinking. <laughs> Again, you're describing me shopping. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. So this is really interesting. This new research, you know, implies some different ways to think about how people shop and how we should sell things if we're retailers. I guess, what are the the implications to you of this research? Uh, Well, I I think there's a a few ways. The basic idea is that you can make a purchase less painful without increasing the subject, sorry, objective value of the purchase. So to the extent that you can distract the consumer from the money leaving their pocket. Um, So there's all kinds of evidence now that Credit cards, and especially contactless credit cards, keychains, waving a phone, um, these make it very frictionless, and, and it's less likely to make you imagine kind of money parting your possession. This makes me think of, I got one of these train rewards cards sometime back, you know, where you get miles on the train or whatever, the plane, and my spending habits changed immediately because the I think what it how what you describe as sort of the distressing part of a purchase becomes I'm actually earning a free trip. And I was frankly aghast, I mean horrified that my behavior was being changed in this way. Um I didn't do anything bad. <laughs> there are benefits, of course. Um it's more secure to to pay with credit than to pay with debit or to be walking around with a wad of twenties. But there are also those self control costs. Scott Rick is a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan. Uh, Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for having me. So we have been talking about the psychology of shopping in today's world of fast fashion, which doesn't look super bright. We're basically animals. Uh, But what about its effect on the environment? So to look at this, We are going to talk to Linda Greer. She's a senior scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Hi, Linda. Hey, how are you doing? Good. So most people may not be aware of the environmental impact behind the fashion business. Can you give us a sense of where the problems are and what the magnitude is? The fashion industry, uh, particularly the dyeing and finishing of fabric, has an enormous environmental impact. And where we see that heaviest is in China, where now about half of the world's clothing is manufactured. So in China, it's, for example, the second largest water polluter, the second largest wastewater discharger. It's a huge energy hog with top 10 industries in the country. And it uses about 25% of all chemicals that are manufactured just to dye and finish our clothing. Wait, a quarter of all the chemicals manufactured goes towards dyeing and finishing clothing? Yes, that's what I've heard. And that really does go to the heart of how much clothing we manufacture and how much uh, clothing we buy. So it's not just the dyes, it's also chemicals used for washing and scouring the fabric before it goes into the process. There's all the chemicals that are used for finishing, so for, you know, stain resistance, wrinkle resistance, shrinkage resistance, um, it goes on and on. All of those finishes are chemicals. Well, I mean, everything around us is chemicals. How does that translate into an environmental problem? The chemicals themselves have two major problems. One is that they are themselves toxic. So there are a number of chemical classes used in textiles, like phthalates, that many people following toxic chemical problems uh, consider quite notorious. Mm-hmm. An even bigger problem in China is just the uh, load of chemicals going into the rivers, mm-hmm. the amount of 
basically oxygen-demanding chemicals that strip oxygen out of the river and cause massive fish kills and then cause a lot of problems in river chemistry as well. The other hotspot area is cotton growing. Uh, cotton is uh, probably misunderstood by most consumers because it is, in fact, a natural fabric and a natural fiber, and we all are tuned in to like natural things. But this particular natural fiber, I have to tell you, uh, takes a really heavy toll on the environment. It uses about uh, a third of all pesticides in some developing countries, and it's also a very, very thirsty crop. Uh, sucking away a lot of water in water-stressed-out areas, including our own state of California. So in the last two decades, we've really seen fashion's supply chain spread into these developing countries. And now with the rise of this idea of fast fashion, have the environmental impacts been getting worse? Yeah, that's actually the, that's the, that's the core of the whole problem here. In the process of globalization, we've basically concentrated and intensified our manufacturing in countries that were not really ready for it and still are not able to control it. So for reasons of both technical capacity, even basic things like knowing how to run wastewater treatment plants, as well as political will, uh, we find that these countries are not ready for prime time. And this industry has a crescendoing growth. The fast fashion industry is just growing like crazy. And so it is the perfect storm of having a very heavy footprint, fast growing industry in places that don't know how to manage it. What's the best way to deal with this, in your opinion? We created a a green supply chain program targeted at the apparel industry called Clean by Design to leverage the uh, multinational corporations to take more responsibility for these uh, factories. Um, NRDC created a set of best practices that factories could be using that would significantly reduce their environmental footprint. Um, I do think that um, this type of program is going to become um, inevitably adopted by these brands because although they continue to uh, sort of languish in the opacity of their supply chains, the curtain is really rising on uh, what is going on around the world. Even in China, where there is not a lot of information, there are um, apps available to the public to learn about their air pollution problems and to see the nature of individual polluting factories, etc. So that gig is going to end sooner rather than later. But I'm fully confident that with the transparency handed to us by uh, the Internet and public concern about pollution in China, that um, they are going to be faced with uh, massive PR problems um, that uh, they will then need to rush to solve. And then this type of green supply chain approach will be just what they needed. Yeah, after all, it it took mass fish kills less than a mile from the White House, the Potomac River smelling like roadkill, and multiple rivers in the U.S. catching fire for major action to get taken on clean water here. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point. It took a tremendous amount of public protest and insistence uh, in order to get our own environmental regulatory framework into place. Everything is happening at uh, 10 times the speed in China. So I think that we are seeing the same uh, sort of maturation of both uh, public concern and um, concern on the part of the Chinese government to put effective programs into place to curtail uh, the waste. Um, I guess the only added uh, issue here is uh, we're quite complicit in the pollution that that country is facing. And that's why I feel so strongly that um, 
we also need to be part of helping them to solve the problem because such a high percentage of that pollution is coming from the manufacture of our own stuff. All right. Linda Greer is a senior scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thanks, Linda, so much. Thanks for having me. So, Sabri, what have we learned? Uh, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that uh, the textile industry, the fashion industry, it preys upon our deepest neuroses. And we've learned that it also is uh, far more resource-intensive and pollutant-producing than probably some people would have thought. Definitely me. I was surprised. I know you're deeper in the environmental world than I am, but I, I guess I had no idea, really, especially about the dying and finishing I think one thing that's interesting from this that we can all maybe take away is this idea of the hedonic competition that we talked about where, you know, one part of your brain is saying, oh, I want this thing, it's cheap, and the other part of your brain is saying, oh, there's like a price to it, maybe it's not so good. And we sort of shove all of the, like, price stuff, all of the the bad stuff over to other countries in the United States and then kind of forget about it. So maybe reminding ourselves of where the pain actually is will help correct our neurological imbalances. That is an excellent point because it's important to bear in mind that one reason why we have been able to make our water, our air, our energy all cleaner here is simply because we have just shifted it to somebody else who can do it the dirty way. 97% of clothes coming from outside the U.S. Yeah. Something to think about. And now for something completely different. At Quartz, we report on surprising discoveries. These are the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. This week's actuality surprising discovery comes from friend of the podcast Akshat Rothi. He's a Quartz reporter in London who has figured out why cats are picky eaters. Sabri, do you have a theory for why cats maybe are fussy eaters? Because nothing tastes as good as being catty feels. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> uh, well, cats actually, uh, scientists have uh, revealed, have many more genes in their taste buds for tasting bitter food compared to both humans and dogs. Mm. So cats actually can eat things that we might find bland or sweet or fine and find them exceptionally bitter. I wonder what the evolutionary impetus for that would be. Why would it be helpful for them to taste well, more asked. bitter things? Uh, I guess scientists were surprised because typically carnivores like cats don't need the bitter uh, taste buds because... um, The bitter alkaloids are in plants most often. Precisely. They are like herbivores would need them to know that they weren't eating like poisonous plants. But cats just eating meat wouldn't have that problem. But apparently scientists say that like um, these bitter tasting genes have other uh, applications. It's beyond just taste. People have them not just in their mouth, but also in their heart, lung, and testes. Uh, So maybe the real surprising discovery isn't that cats taste a lot of bitter food, but that you have bitter taste receptors all over your body. Does that explain why I feel bitter everywhere I go in all facets of my life? Um, I don't know. I don't think it's been explained yet. All right. Well, uh, that's all the time we got. So thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to know more about fast fashion or the... Or better cats. The unintended, painful consequences of every decision you make in a capitalist economy, check out marketplace.org and qz.com. 
And while you're at Quartz, do sign up for our daily brief. It is the perfect way to start the day. And by the way, we'd love to know what you think of this podcast, what you like and what you don't, and what topics we should take on. So email us at mpqz at marketplace.org or leave us a message on the phone at 802-430-6779. And we are on Twitter. I'm at Sabritree and Tim is at Tim Fernholtz with a Z. Uh, Jake Gorski uh, made our theme song, and for that we are grateful. Claire Tennisketter makes this podcast, and for that we are grateful. And we also thank our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz. Happy Thanksgiving, overlords. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories. See you then. See you then.